We live in the information age. There is an overwhelming amount of information available at our fingertips today in the 21st century. Obviously, much of this information is tainted by humanism and sin, but there's also some really good information out there for us. There's never been, there, there have never been such widely available resources for Christian believers today. In the United States, anyone with a smartphone or a computer can have access to the Bible at anywhere, anytime. There are tons of free commentaries and Bible study resources online. Uh, there's even Bible software such as Logos, which allows people without a seminary education to study the Bible at an incredible depth. And also, if you look online, there's tons of websites you can go to to hear the gospel proclaimed in different ways. Yet, sadly, we see the number of Christians in the U.S. continues to do what? It's plummeting. It continues to go down. So why in an era where there's so much access to the gospel is there such a falling away? Now, there's many reasons for this, and time would fail us to talk about all of the reasons that that may be, but two of the main reasons are seen in our scripture today. Now, the first is, number one, we see a lack of true discipleship in today's church. Many Christians do not take evangelism and discipleship very seriously. Uh, those who have made professions of faith in churches and crusades have been herded forth like cattle, said a quick prayer, and then said, hey, now you're saved. Things are, are good. One prayer and, and you're good. As a, fam a distant family member of mine likes to say, he has his fire insurance. Well, my friends, that's not how it works. Many of these individuals become statistics of false converts, and they are deceived and think that they are true believers. No one has followed up to see if their com commitment was true or not. Then there are those who have made true professions of faith, but then they're left to study the, God's Word on their own without any help, without anyone helping them open up the Scriptures like the Ethiopian eunuch that needed Philip the evangelist to explain the book of Isaiah to him, that the Messiah was there, so also we need to be in the local church. We need to be taught what the Word says, what it means. We have the Holy Spirit that will reveal much of that to us, but we're made to be in a community to where we can sharpen one another, one another as iron sharpens iron. These people that do not get plugged into the local church stay on spiritual milk, and they never really do mature. The local church is a place where we are to grow and sharpen one another. And secondly, we see, number two, we see a lack of discipline in today's church. Uh, the church has not been protected against false teaching, as we mentioned last week, and false teachers, and it's become watered down. Uh, we live in an era where anything goes. Uh, we live in an era of subjective morality and relative truth, and these heretical doctrines of humanism have found their way into many churches. God cares much about the doctrinal purity of the church, and we cannot disciple well if we do not have biblical doctrine. Sadly, as I prepared for this, and even over the past years, I, I, when we were looking for churches as well, moving different places, I've looked at probably hundreds, if not thousands, of church websites over the past you know decade, couple decades. Very, very rarely do I see a doctrinal statement that is biblical. It is so sad. There are these business points, like we do these things. And, and, and that's how their website uh, kind of pro proclaims itself. And, and sadly, this, this, this watered-down-anything-goes approach has left the church nothing more than a pseudo-moral country club. Paul's going to speak on these two things as he addresses Timothy and the church as a whole in the following verses. Let's get into it. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 12 through 20. Starting in verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, 
But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed with me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of kings, of, uh, the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may, may learn not to blaspheme. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, even for the hard words, Lord, even for the hard words, Lord. We thank you so much that you have given us your entire scripture, 66 books, 1,189 chapters. You've given us your word, the inerrant word of God. May we hunger and thirst for it. Uh, may we approach your scripture today, casting off all of our pre-understandings that are unbiblical, all of our ideas in the culture, and may we focus on your word and be changed by it from the inside out. God, open up our hearts and minds to hear and obey your word. We love you, Lord. Amen. So today we're going to see two charges that God gives the church. The first is God calls for discipleship for the dependent. Discipleship for the dependent. I'm going to reread verse 12 for us. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. So Paul starts about talking about this service that he's been appointed to. Uh, he has been given the incredible role as a foundational apostle, as we discussed last week, of Christ's church. But he's also been called to make disciples of all nations like we all have been in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Uh, those who are repentant are re and ready to be dependent upon God need to be discipled. And we are all charged to do this, and we can only do this by the strength that God provides. Like Paul asserts here, he thanked Jesus for the strength that he was given to minister by sharing the gospel and ministering to the saved as well. And Paul did some pretty amazing things. He planted church in almost the entire known world. He was all over the place, planting churches here and here and here, and then sending out others to plant them as well. And in order to do that, Paul had a battle cry, and it was in Philippians 4.13, which many of us know. He was using it to plant churches and do ministry. Other people used it to play football. But this is, uh, this is really a, a, a spiritual verse, not necessarily uh, a verse for football, but it's, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It is extremely and vitally important that we know where our strength comes from. It doesn't come from in here and ourself. It comes from Christ. He equips those he calls. Paul understood that his strength came from the Lord, that he couldn't do anything apart from God. He remembers the words of Jesus who says, apart from me you can do nothing, right? Nothing. And those who are faithful are appointed to service for God and empowered by the Holy Spirit to perform that service. After a really positive first verse, and Paul gets a little bit on the more negative side about himself. He wants to remind his readers that God saves sinners. Amen? God saves sinners. So let's listen to verses 13 and 14. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with a faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul refers to himself in three negative ways here. Number one, Paul was a blasphemer. Uh, this first claim must have been extremely hard for Paul 
to admit. So Paul was a Pharisee, a Jew of Jews, if you listen to him. He was trained under one of the best Pharisaical teachers, Gamaliel. And so this guy, he kept the law to a T. And so blasphemy is what? It's the first commandment. You're not supposed to do that, right? And so Paul would have never taken the name of Yahweh in vain. But yet he realized he took the name of Christ in vain. That, that, that Jesus Christ is God. And so he was a blasphemer and he admits that. Today our world throws around the name of Jesus and God like they're common words. We bleep out certain ex- expletives, but we allow the name of God to be just cast like it's a four-letter filth word, like it's something on the bottom of your shoe. Listen to, listen to how God feels about that in Deuteronomy 5.11. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. There is a punishment for blasphemy. For those who are unrepentant and blaspheme, they go to hell. That's what happens. And we just allow it to just go in our society everywhere. Using the names of God, such as Jesus Christ or God, it's God himself, among, as a four-letter filth word is one of the worst things that you can do. Todd Friel in his evangelistic outings oftentimes asks people if they would take their mom's name in vain, that they would use their mother's name as a curse word, and most of them are appalled, and they would never dishonor their mother that way, yet they dishonor the God who created them, just like that. Next, we see that Paul was a persecutor. Paul made it his ambition to destroy Christ's church. His persecution of the church was actually a persecution of Christ himself. He was not only blaspheming the name of God, but also railing against Christ by trying to punish those who did follow him and working against the work of Christ. And finally, Paul, number three, was an insolent opponent. He was an insolent opponent. It's not a typical phrase we use in English. The the word insolent means arrogant. Uh, But the phrase as a whole originates from the Greek word ubristes. And this Greek word comes from the word hubris, which means pride. If we go back to the fall of man, even in Genesis 3, it came back to pride. Paul was a proud and arrogant man who violently opposed Jesus Christ in arrogance. Yet astonishingly, this Paul that we just described, that he just described himself to us, received mercy. Now look back at our verses there. We discussed what mercy was last week. If you look back at at verses 13 and 14, we discussed that it was not getting the judgment that you do deserve. And if you look at that verse, this guy deserves judgment. This guy, Paul, deserves hell, and yet he has shown mercy. Paul asserts that he was shown mercy because he acted ignorantly in unbelief. And Paul's not saying, don't take here, unbelievers are excused from their unbelief. Uh, No, that's not what he's saying. They are still guilty and do face the coming judgment. The scripture is very clear about that. But what he's saying is he's comparing himself to the false teachers at this point. So at that point, he said he hated Christ, he stood against Christ, and he persecuted the church intentionally. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, was open about being against Jesus Christ. Yet these false teachers claim to know Christ, and yet they are blasphemers, insolent opponents, and persecutors of Christ. After Paul's repentance and after God's mercy was poured out upon him, he was given three replacement qualities to replace those. Paul became full of grace, faith, and love. How, how beautiful is that? He became full of grace, faith, and love. Here again, we see the beauty of faith and love together. Again, we remember every time but once in the pastoral epistles, faith and love are together. And here we see grace sprinkled in. Uh, These three wonderful qualities replace the trifecta of bad qualities that he had come from. But Paul did not forget who he was without Christ. Look at verse 15 and 16. 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Note he didn't say, I received mercy because I'm great, because I had a lot to bring to the table, because, you know what, he, God made me so much better than everyone else that he, he chose me to do this amazing work. It's like, no, he did choose Paul, absolutely. But it wasn't because Paul was great. It's actually because Paul was the foremost of sinners, the worst of sinners. That's why he chose you too, because he could show his glory through that. You know, if, 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 if he can save Adam, then, I mean, he can save anybody, right? If he can save Jonathan, he can save anybody. God saves us so that other people can look at us and be like, wow, if that guy can be saved, I guess I could too. And Paul is saved by God by through Christ, to show the power and mercy and grace of God. This phrase, the saying is trustworthy, comes up five different times, actually, in the pastoral epistles. It's in your hand out there. To illustrate the trustworthiness of Paul's message, though, he brings himself into the picture. He wants people to look at him. And in verse 16, he answers that question, why would God save a sinner like Paul? Why would God save someone who is bent on rebellion against him and killing those who follow him? And again, he asserts that the God saved Paul so that those like us who, who read these verses, if you get to somebody and they say, uh, I'm too bad to save. God could never save a sinner like me. Read these verses to them and say, hey, God saved somebody who was killing Christians, who was approving of it, who was going to other areas to drag them out, take them into court, and try to throw them into prison. He was splitting up families. He was doing awful things. And God saved a man like that. God can save you as well. Isn't that beautiful? And when we think we're too bad to be saved, remember Paul, and Paul wants you to remember him. He wants you to say, hey, he took me, an insolent opponent, an arrogant and violent oppressor of the gospel. You know, I don't know many Pauls out there. There are some out there, but there's not a whole lot of Pauls that are outwardly just trying to persecute the church like that, at least in our area. Then he gets to this beautiful verse in 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That is such a beautiful verse. This is called a doxology, and a doxology is a brief expression of praise directed toward God. Uh, the root word comes from the Greek doxa, which means praise and honor and glory, and then we see logos, which means word or utterance. This is praise, a word of praise. As we look further into verse 17, Paul refers to Jesus Christ with these following names. He calls him the king of ages. The king of ages. This refers to his eternal nature. He is king forever. He is immortal. He is imperishable, which means he will never experience death or destruction. God is forever. He is immortal. Number three, invisible. This is to be con contrasted with the pagan idols of Paul's day. Yes, they could see those idols, but they were not God. They just sat there. But God is everywhere at once. He's not limited by a statue. He's not limited by a person, or he's not limited by... He, he is a spirit. He is everywhere at once. His spirit transcends time and space. And number four, the only God, no other God has ever existed. Just like Exodus 20, verse 3, the first commandment. And then as we saw, this definition of doxology ends with a verse saying, Jesus is to have all honor and glory forever and ever. 
And he ends it with amen. Amen is a transliteration, uh, which means it's spelled like it sounds. The English is similar to the Hebrew. We say it similarly, which means so be it or this is true. So we've seen the importance of discipleship for those who are dependent upon God. Namely, those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. If we want order in the church, we want the church to be pure, the church needs to be made of those who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. If anyone here does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I would love to talk to you after the service about what it means to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. God became flesh, dwelt among us, lived a perfect and sinless life, walked among us, did miracles, amazing things, cast out demons, showed that he was truly God and is truly God. He was crucified on a cross. He hung there, bled and died. And before that, he was, he was beat 40 minus one lashings to where you couldn't recognize who he was. He was marred. Why did he do that? He did that to take on the wrath of God for us. We deserved hell. Jesus took the punishment for sin on the cross and he was placed into a tomb. But praise be to God, that's not where it stopped. Three days later, he rose and now he's at the right hand of the Father, ready to intercede for you and me. He took the penalty from us, but the only way that gets credited to our account is if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's more than just a prayer. It's your whole life is given to him. No longer is it my life, but it is his. You are bought with a price. You are his. And that love, that peace, is far beyond anything this world can offer. And I pray that our church is made up of born-again believers, that we are utterly dependent upon him. Next, we see that in order to have order, an ordered church, God calls discipline for the disobedient. Disciplined for the disobedient. I'm going to read uh, verse 18 in the first half of 19 here. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So Paul brings this word charge again. If you remember last week, it's a military word. It means to order. It's, like, it's, just, it's a hardcore charge. You must do this. And he tells them that this charge is, that he's been entrusted with is according to the prophecies that have been said about him before. Timothy was called to serve the Lord in a mighty way, and he, he was doing so as he ministered to the church of Ephesus. We see Paul is going to mention this again later in this book, in chapter 4, verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So Timothy has been set apart and commissioned as an elder of the church, a pastor of the church, a preacher, a shepherd. Paul reminds him of his calling, and after giving him this charge to combat false teachers and discipline the disobedient, he summarizes this charge in three ways. Number one, Timothy is to wage the good warfare. Number two, while holding faith. And number three, while holding a good conscience. Paul is reminding Timothy that there is a spiritual battle all, um, all around him. He needs to wage the good warfare while holding faith and, and holding a good conscience. Uh, actually, Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, the, the church of Ephesus, in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, had already said this, "...put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood." It's not people that we're fighting but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. The only way to fight against the enemy of our souls, namely Satan and his demons, is to hold fast to faith and maintain a good conscience. Our faith must be in Christ alone. We must not be trusting in ourselves as we often like to do. So many church leaders have done this and fallen 
miserably. Our perseverance is only possible through the power of Christ in us and through us. And we must hold fast to a good conscience. Paul charges Timothy to do this, and, but we also need to maintain a good conscience as believers. So many unbelievers have been turned off by so-called Christians who don't measure up to what they profess. How many times do we see people talk about Jesus but live just like the world or maybe even worse? My friends, what we believe, namely our faith, must match up to our actions. Obviously, we're not going to be perfect. I get that, but we should be quick to repent. A good conscience is only possible in the life of a believer who is practicing what he preaches. In order to maintain purity and order in the church, we must be disciplined in the faith. We must be walking the walk. Paul urges Timothy to be following Christ well, and he urges us to follow Christ with integrity. That's a seemingly lost word today, is an Integrity. We as believers are called to have integrity, which amounts to a good conscience. So what is integrity? It can be defined in many, many ways, but it, it's often defined as a, a consistent and unwavering commitment to a strict moral and ethical code. Practically, it's doing the right thing even when no one else is watching. We talk to my kids a lot about this. You know, when mom and dad are there, maybe you do what's right, but what are you doing when mom and dad aren't there? You know, I, what are you doing at that point? That shows you who you really are. What, what is your heart? When somebody's not watching, what are you doing? That is integrity. And integrity is a huge issue in our world today. A, a study by Rutgers University over a large co cohort of high school students showed that 64% had cheated on a test, 58% had plagiarized, and 95% had cheated in one way or another. Another study from the American Psychological Association showed that stores, retail stores, lose around $8 billion per year from inventory shortages. That number is probably higher today. But 10% of this loss is due to clerical errors. 30% is due to shoplifting. But the remaining 60%, which, which amounts to around $16 million per day, is due to theft by who? Employees. Wow. The, this cultural lack of integrity threatens the church as well. May we be reminded by Paul here to hold fast to a good conscience. Only then can we have a pure church. As John MacArthur asserts, there is an inseparable link between truth and morality, between right belief and right behavior. Those who truly have right belief, the behavior will follow. A lot of times we, we say we believe something, but we show it by our action. Let's see this last uh, verse and a half here. We're going to see the big issue, a couple of guys that were causing some problems in the church. Second half of verse 19 and Verse 20, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may, not, may, may learn not to blaspheme. Here are a couple of false teachers that did not have integrity. They did not hold fast to the word of God. Instead, Paul used this word swerving, if you remember last week. Now we're seeing the result of that swerving. What happens when you swerve? Well, you can swerve in a good way where maybe a car is coming at you and you need to swerve out of the way. Well, this is not a good swerving. This is that you are on ah, maybe close to the right path and you swerve and go a 180 the other direction. So what happens with a swerving? They have made shipwreck of their faith. Uh, a shipwreck is an awful sight. Uh, to watch a wooden boat break into thousands and thousands of pieces would be terrifying, wouldn't it? These shipwrecks would often occur during a horrible storm, which the storms are what really test your integrity, aren't they? It's easy to have integrity when things are well, when finances aren't tight, right? It's easy to test that integrity. Am I really going to give to God's work? Uh, you know, it's a, little, it's a little tighter right now, so I'm probably not going to now. 
now, now I'm going to hold back because I don't trust God. Right? And that, that's what we, we do that sometimes, right? It, it, it's, it's a problem that we have to fight. And it's what shows integrity. It's easy to give when you have maybe an abundance and you're like, oh, okay, I'll do this. It's easy not to, to skimp on something when you have plenty. But these, these boats, these ships would be tossed to and fro and they would be broken one of two ways normally. One, it would be the winds and the waves would just crack it and break it into millions of pieces, thousands of pieces in the sea itself, or it would throw it onto the shores, under the rocks, and break it that way. But Paul understood shipwrecks up close and personal. He knew what they were like. 2 Corinthians 11.25 tells us that Paul has experienced at least three shipwrecks at that point. And if you keep reading, actually, 2 Corinthians was written before Acts, in the book of Acts, Chapter 27 shows there was at least one other shipwreck uh, as well. So at least four, maybe more, that Paul had had. That's pretty bad luck. I'd have a hard time getting on a ship again if I had four shipwrecks. But Paul showed very, very good, uh, um, you know, he, he had some gumption. We'll just say that. And he was stubborn. He kept getting on those ships. The last one, though, he was arrested, so he didn't really have a choice the last time. But as a side note, most, Paul, most believers uh, or most scholars tell us that the, the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, were among the last letters that he wrote. But moving back to his illustration, Paul certainly understood the vivid detail of this illustration, up close and personal, to what happens when one swerves from the faith. Paul then mentions these two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander. We discussed last week that most scholars think that these were elders or pastors of the church that needed to be excommunicated from the church of Ephesus due to being false teachers. And we're told that they were handed over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. These were pretty big charges. They were either saying something that God said, or saying God said something that he didn't, or the opposite, right? We're, we're, we're seeing that at this point. And this concept and practice of church discipline is almost non-existent in the American church today. Uh, raise your hand if you've seen church discipline in a former church you've been a part of. I mean, very, very few, right? You know, you don't see it very, very often. We were blessed. We came from a church that did do it. Uh, We were sent out from a church that did do it if you came from Good Shepherd. Although this is not the most popular topic to discuss in churches, it is a necessary one to maintain doctrinal purity and church purity. Interestingly, the most clear teaching of church discipline comes from who? Jesus. Actually, as he walks on earth during his earthly ministry, he actually tells us how to do church discipline before the church is actually fully established. Isn't that amazing that God knew this was coming? And so Jesus gives probably the most clear teaching on this. Paul fills in some of the, uh, you know, kind of puts some mud to kind of help, help us see a little bit more in there. In Matthew 18, Jesus says this, verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So we're going to talk about the steps of church discipline and conflict resolution in the church. This is something that is not done well. It's not done well in our own personal lives. So we're going to see this isn't just all church discipline. It ends there if it doesn't get taken care of before then. But this is something for yourself. If someone sins against you or you sin against someone else, this is how Jesus has called us to do this. Number one, you are commanded, listen, commanded, not suggested, you are commanded to approach the brother or sister who sinned against you. We saw that in verse 15. Interestingly, we are commanded to approach the offender and not the opposite. 
If someone sins against you and the world, what does the world say? And sometimes what do we say? Well, they need to come to me. It was th- they're the one that sinned against me. I, don't, I didn't do anything wrong. Why do I have to say something to them? But Jesus says, it's on you. If you were sinned against, you need to go talk to them. You need to handle business and talk to them. Jesus tells us the exact opposite. Now, although it is certainly not a problem, if you sin against someone and you go and you apologize, that is a great thing. If you sin against someone, don't wait for them to approach you. You should do that as a believer. You should make that happen. However, approaching someone who sinned against you should be done humbly and lovingly. Not just, well, you did this, and you're a bad person, and you need to repent right now. You know, or I'm going to talk to the pastor about you. Like, that's not how it comes off. It should come off like this. Remember Luke 6? I know that's been a long time ago. Been a whole, a real long time ago we were in Luke 6. But here's what we taught about in Luke 6, verses 41 through 42. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? We talked about like a log, and it's like a tree coming out of your eye, trying to get somebody's speck, and how many times you would hit them in the head and knock them out trying to get that speck. You're going to hurt people. You need to take care of business with the Lord. How can you say to your brother, let me take out that speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. With the Lord's help, you can't just take it out yourself. You need to repent. The Lord will remove that. And then you will clearly see to take, take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now notice, you deal with the log, then you, but you still deal with the speck. When you are sinned against, you still need to go and approach that person. You can't just be like, well, we're all sinners. Isn't that the way we do it, isn't it? The reason we do that is because we don't like accountability. Let's just be honest. We don't want to call them out because then they're going to call us out when we're sinning against them. And we don't like that idea in America. We don't like the idea of accountability. That's why we don't like to join churches. That's why we don't like to join certain things. We don't like to commit to anything because then there's going to be accountability. And when there's accountability, we don't like that. We, We want to be accountable to ourselves because we want to be God of our own life. Let's just be honest. We don't want people telling us what to do. I'm there. Does anybody like being told what to do? No. We don't. Our natural pride, our rebellion against God, our rebellion against any authority is strong, and so we keep people at a distance. So we don't want that accountability, so we refuse oftentimes to to hold other people accountable because we know that mirror is going to turn around and we're going to be seen at some point. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says we are to hold others accountable, and we're to welcome that accountability as well. If you want to be able to address sin within your brother or sister in Christ, be sure you've repented of your own sins, that you've gotten right with God so that you can see clearly to deal with that sin. Now, hopefully this is a peaceful encounter, and most things should stop here. If we're talking about two believers, this is a brother or sister in Christ. Now, obviously, if they're not in the church, they're not a part here, you, can still, you should still take this, but if they're not a believer, they don't have the Holy Spirit. The conviction's not going to fall. Maybe they'll feel guilt, their conscience will convict them, and they'll apologize. That's wonderful. But don't expect an unbeliever to respond to this. You can still do it in a nice way, but it may or may not be there. But hopefully if they're a believer, the relationship's restored and reconciled, and you can, you can stop right there. But if not, you're to move on to number two. Number two, if no repentance is found, you should take one or two along with you to approach the person who sinned against you. This is verse 16 in Matthew 18. It is important that these one or two persons are godly individuals. You don't just go get your best friend. And whoever's going to take your side and say, hey, you know, and then their best friend's over there saying, I can't believe you did that to her. I can't believe you did that to him. You're a horrible person. You know, they've only heard the one side. A godly person's going to come to that and listen to both sides. They're going to take everything in stride. And they're going to investigate and try to figure out what exactly is going on. One may consider taking a deacon or a pastor or maybe both, maybe an elder to a difficult situation like this. This is not the time to take your best friend. 
or someone biased or your mama. Probably not taking your mama either. It's probably a bad idea. <laughs> note, note that this has all been done, what, confidentially so far. That This has been done confidentially. We're not just gossiping and saying, can you believe what so-and-so did? Can you believe? And now 14 people have been brought into this. Jesus didn't say, go take your posse and approach them. God didn't, God didn't say, hey, or Jesus didn't say, hey, go tell everyone else in the church before the person that actually offended you. No, he said, take one or two. Those are the only people that should know, other than maybe a confidential counselor that you know that you could talk to. This should be somebody that's going to give you godly advice. You go to that person first. Even before getting the other people involved, you went to that person first. Now, if you have someone that is godly, that's trustworthy, that can keep a confidence, it's great maybe before you go to ask, ask some help from that. That's fine. But if you're going you're to take two people with you, there shouldn't be a whole lot of people that know about this at this point. Because your goal is not to defame that person and gossip about that person. Your goal is a reconciliation, that this will be put behind both of you, that this sin, as grievous as, as it may have been, may be able to be reconciled. Now, I understand there's some sins that are going to destroy relationships, really big sins. There are those. And, and you're not going to be able to be fully reconciled, but you should be able to forgive move on. Maybe you can't be in the same church body anymore. Maybe it was such a bad sin that even though there's been forgiveness and, and, and you've moved past it, maybe there has to be a break in that relationship. I understand that. But there should be closure to this. This shouldn't just be hanging out there. Hopefully, this repentance, whenever you take this one or two people, now all of a sudden they, they've, they've experienced some humbling there and they, and they choose to repent and that, re that re relationship can be reconciled and things are better. But occasionally, sadly, People don't respond sometimes to this as well. They get so far into their sin. We see this oftentimes with affairs. That's one of, the, one of the most common places this issue comes into. A husband or a wife leaves their spouse. They're with someone else. Obviously, people have went to them. They've taken other people and said, hey, you need to repent. You need to get out of that place. You need to get out of that relationship. You are in sin right now. They say, no, I'm, not. I'm happy. I like where I'm at right now. And then Maybe the pastor and a deacon go and they meet with them or her as well and they're still, no, I'm happy with where I'm at. This is where we come to this. When, when that's a church member, a believer that is living in that unrepentant sin, this is where we come to three. Number three, even if church, after church leaders and the offended person are not able to draw the sinful person to repentance, church discipline comes in the form of excommunication. Hmm. Here's where most churches bow out. They're done. This, this is where they say, well, they're not coming back anyway, so we'll just brush that under the table, right? I mean, you know, they're probably not going to show their face here anyway because everybody's mad at them, so we're just going to eh, just brush that under the rug. Maybe they will come back at some point, but that's going to be awkward, right? You know, whatever that is. So, but, or, or maybe there's that person that keeps coming back. Well, they, they continue to come. I know they're living in this unrepentant sin. I know they get drunk every Saturday night before they come to church. Um, but they're coming still, right? You know, they're still coming. I know we've tried to, you know, we've tried to get them help. We went and we talked to them. But they said, I love drinking. This is what I do every Saturday night. I go to the bar, I go to this, and I go there, I go, whatever it is. But then wouldn't it be better, and this is what we hear most of the time. A lot of believers say this. This is kind of a worldly way of thinking. It, it seems right, but it's not. Wouldn't it be better if we just let them stay in the fellowship so that they were able to be around God's people and feel conviction, right? Well, God's word says no, and Jesus says no to that. This is, we're talking again, we're talking about born-again believers who are members of the church. We're not talking about unbelievers. Unbelievers can come and hear the gospel anytime they want to, and we welcome them. We want them here, 
But this is talking about somebody who, who claims Christ, says they're a believer, joins the church, and is living in unrepentant sin. That's who we're talking about here, so be clear there. They're to be treated, Jesus says, like a Gentile or a tax collector. What does that mean? In, in Jewish terms, it's an it's a outcast. It's like, no, you're not, you're not welcome here. This is not where to be. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 5 with an unrepentant sinner, a guy who had done some really bad stuff. He says, you were deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of, of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Excommunicating an unrepentant sinner from the church is actually an attempt to see them saved or to see if they are saved to begin with. Uh, those who are in the church are blessed with some spiritual protection from the church. By allowing an unrepentant sinner to maintain good standing of, in the church, we, we actually give them a false sense of security, make them feel like they're okay. This damages the, the church and the unrepentant sinner both by destroying their, the, the church, church's purity. Remember the, uh, the account of Achan in the Old Testament book of Joshua in chapter 7. Uh, if you remember the, the Battle of Jericho, which was amazing, this is the, the, the craziest battle plan ever. Let's, walk, let's, let's just walk around this thing once a day for six days, seven days. Let's go around seven, seven times. It's a pretty big city. And then at the end, they all scream, blow trumpets, and the walls just fall. And they take out this huge fortified city of Jericho. And right after that, there's a, a small town of Ai, a small fortified city. Joshua's like, we don't really need that many people to take them out. He sends like 3,000 people, I think, something like that. Small, small group. And they get their backsides kicked. And they come back, 27 of them end up dead. And they're like, what happened? We, we just defeated Jericho, and now we can't take this little place. And, and it, 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 it appeared, we find out later that Achan, one of the Israelites, had stolen some things when they weren't supposed to from Jericho. He was not supposed to take these, these items, and he hid them under his tent. And God is judging all of Israel because of this man's sin. The purity of the camp was defiled because of Achan's sin. God cares about the purity of his church and his people. And it also damages the unrepentant sinner by not allowing them to feel the full weight of his or her sin. Uh, there are those that are able to be around the light of Christ by being a part of the body of, of believers. They, they think that they're saved, but they may not be. That light around them may not be coming from within them. It may be coming from you guys. And now all of a sudden they feel like they're okay with the Lord when they're not. They may be deceived and not truly be believers. And by allowing them to maintain and be maintained in membership and, and fellowship, we inadvertently may condemn them to hell. May we never be guilty of this. May we order our church by the word of God and not man's ideas. And may we maintain a pure and orderly church for the glory of God. Because we gather first and foremost here, my friends, for, the, for God's glory and God's pleasure, not for ourselves. We gather because of him. It is his church, not ours. It's his church. May, may our love for people never dim our love for Christ and his, world, and his word. As we love Christ and his word more perfectly, then we can love people in the right way. So come to a close. We, we've seen some further teachings on how we should order the church. We must disciple believers, right? We need to be continually learning by studying the Word of God and sitting under biblical teaching in the local church. And we've learned that we must exercise appropriate church discipline in the church to maintain the order and purity of Christ's church. But sadly, in our consumeristic culture, we've brought into our thinking a mindset that the church needs us and that we are doing the, the, the church, Christ, a favor by attending the church, by giving or by serving. 
We're bringing something to the table. And frankly, many pastors have fed this way of thinking by seeking to provide entertainment instead of biblical preaching. And they've appeared as, as peddlers of something, trying to sell something, as beggars trying to get people to come in so that they can maintain their job, so they can maintain their salary. They're trying to sell something that's not Jesus Christ. Jesus needs no salesman. He needs no peddler. He only commands us to be obedient and true to his word. The biblical view of the church is that it is a privilege and a blessing to be able to gather on Sunday mornings and worship him and glorify him and make much of him. It is a place of protection and encouragement for those who are his saints. And praise God for his church. And may we at Cross Point always be fully obedient to Christ in every way. Let us pray.